My dear brothers and sisters, to those of you of the Mount Waverly Ecclesia, I would like to express the fraternal uh, greetings of your brothers and sisters in Toronto and uh, those of your beloved in South Australia. Last night, brothers and sisters, we took a look at the social background to the problems that existed in the Ecclesia at Corinth. We'll review those now. We saw that there were divisions in Corinth, or party factions. We obtain this from chapter 1, where the Apostle says, reading at verse uh, 10, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the factions broke down this way. We have the Apollos faction. We mentioned that Apollos was an eloquent man, fervent in the spirit and mighty in the scriptures. And he was able to convince in that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now this would make a great appeal to the Grecian section of the Corinthian Ecclesia. They had a heritage whereby they esteem rhetoric, the ability to argue. We noted some of their methods of argumentation, the Socratic method, whereby they pose questions that would lead an opponent to an inescapable conclusion, or the syllogism, whereby if an opponent admitted the, the, the premises, he could not escape the conclusions. Paulus, probably heading up the Grecian element of the Corinthian Ecclesia. And we took a look at the background in terms of the ethics of Corinth. We found that there were the Epicureans and the Stoics in Corinth. And the Epicureans were the hedonists. These were the ones that said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Paul alludes to their statement in his 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So they maximize pleasure. What's the moral criterion for what I do? I ought to do that which maximizes my own pleasure. Then there were the Stoics, those who were ascetics, those who practiced a rigorous self-denial of the fleshly appetites. And you recall when the apostle went to the Agora, or the marketplace, certain philosophers came along, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and said, what is this babbler saying? And by a babbler, they meant a seed picker. What is this man who isn't even an original? He just picks up seeds from other places. He seems to be a setter forth of strange divinities. When he talked about anastasis, the Greek word for resurrection, they thought he was talking about a strange god or a divinity. They misunderstood his message. The Epicureans and the Stoic element of society. 
we found that the big mistake the Greeks made was that they thought that to know was to do. And that the ethical system was really based on uh, this assumption. That to know was to do. And so what do you do? You feed in more knowledge. And there's an interesting distinction made in the Greek words. There is the word oida, which is to know, to perceive by the senses. We'll come to this in a few minutes. There's another word, uh, ginosko, which also is to know, but it is to arrive at a conclusion from intellectual reasoning. And the Greeks made a distinction. For a man like Plato, he would learn that if you put a stick in water, it appeared to bend. So information derived from the senses was said to be unreliable. I correct this unreliable impression by ginosko, another Greek word used in the New Testament for to know. In other words, I reason about the phenomenon of a stick placed in water which appears to bend. Hence you see a distinction preserved in the Greek text between oida and ginosko. This means to perceive by intellectual cogitation, by reasoning and meditation, this information derived from the senses. Well, the Greeks love mystery. They had all sorts of mystery cults existing in uh, Greece at the time the Apostle Paul was writing. And the Apostle Paul comes under fire in chapter 1 for the simplicity of the message. Here he's preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, the wisdom of God in a crucified Messiah. And for these Greeks who esteemed physical prowess, why, under the Spartans, the women had to bring their children to be uh, examined by the city authorities as to whether or not they let them live. Greeks had great pride in physical prowess. And here was the Apostle Paul of whom they said, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. A man who had nothing to offer the Greeks by way of his physical demeanor, but he said, I am not rude in knowledge because he was intellectually enlightened by the word of God. We had uh, not only the Grecian element, which as you can appreciate, would readily rally behind uh, a person of the kind Apollos was, eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, the Grecians would gravitate to this kind of person in the Ecclesia. But you also had the Cephas party. Now, presumably, these were the Judaizers. And we'll learn, we look at the chronology, that Corinth experienced an arrival of certain Judaizers with letters of commendation who began to subvert the simplicity that was in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul gives a lot of attention to this in his 11th chapter of his second epistle. So you have the Judaizers. We also have those who apparently followed the Apostle Paul. These might have been the Libertines, who felt that they had a newfound liberty in Christ Jesus, and so what does it matter if meat's offered to idols? An idol is nothing, and they were offending the consciences of their weak brethren. And perhaps a neutral party, those who said, uh, I am of Christ. They stood apart from the other party factions in the Ecclesia. Now, brothers and sisters, supposing you arrived on the scene at Corinth 
And you're the Apostle Paul who established this ecclesia. And here now you've only become just one of a number of parties. No longer are you regarded as an authority. You're just a number, a one of a number of other groups that uh, have their leaders at Corinth. What are you going to do? First of all, if you come in and say, look, I am an apostle, I have delegated responsibilities to found ecclesias, you'd better follow me. But he has an, a Paul faction in the ecclesia. And sure enough, that faction in the ecclesia is going to rally behind him and say, well, aren't we right after all? And so you see, he has to straighten out the problem there without enhancing the position of those who follow him. Now let's work through this uh, first chapter and on into the third chapter and see how the Apostle Paul moves through the problem. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our, Greek text, the brother Sosthenes. Now, he first of all sets out that he is called. That's the first point. Paul is a called individual, as we can learn from Galatians chapter 1 or Acts chapter 9, where he relates his call. And not only that, he's called to be an apostle, one sent to the ecclesia, he says, of God, which is at Corinth. Uh, not of Corinth, as he uh, writes to the other ecclesias like Philippi, but it's the ecclesia at Corinth. Because as he told them, he said, don't keep company with fornicators, those who practice pornea, illicit sexual enterprises. He says, not that I'm speaking of uh, those in the world. He says, because if I spoke of those in the world... He said, you'd have to leave the world. Chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world, he says. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So it's the ecclesia at Corinth. In Corinth, but they're not a part of that society. They are separate. And they are called to be saints. Together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these words need attention. They are sanctified. They are saints. And they are called. And not only does the body of Christ exist at Corinth, but to all those who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes the Corinthians out of their parochial view of setting up and behaving like ordinary men, as he says in chapter 3, verse 3. And he says, look, Corinthians, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're holy, you are saints, and you're called by God Almighty himself. And so he proceeds to tell them that in verse 7, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you. 
Now, brothers and sisters, that's a very significant statement in terms of what went on at Corinth. Because God had wrought very generously in the Ecclesia at Corinth. They had an abundance of the Spirit gifts. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose of the Spirit gifts is stated very clearly. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipment of the holy ones, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Now notice the purpose of God giving to these ecclesias Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? First of all, to equip the saints. It equipped the saints, for example, in confirming the word. These signs shall follow them that believe. In Mark chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ names them. And these would confirm the word. So when an apostle spoke, and he said, Look, uh, I lay down this commandment. And if any of you think he's spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I write unto you is the commandment of the Lord, says the Apostle Paul in chapter 14. And the credentials were the Apostle wrought the signs of an Apostle with signs, miracles, and wonders. So the spirit gifts were part of the equipment of the saints until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature stature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But what were the Corinthians doing? Here God had confirmed their testimony in Christ Jesus. He had, as it were, given the divine stamp of validation on their baptism by giving them the spirit gifts. Now, the spirit gifts were designed to build up, to edify, for the ministry of the called out ones. And notice, verse 10, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said he would send the Comforter, the Paracletos, that all of you agree that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now just imagine... Those mighty spirit gift powers. Peter was able to smite people down dead by virtue of the spirit powers. Men became blind by the spirit power. Others were raised by the spirit power. And here in this ecclesia, that didn't lack in any spiritual gift, said the apostle. What were they doing? They were arguing. They were disagreeing. They were rending apart 
the protective covering that had been given to them. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, they put on Christ in their baptism. What were they doing now at Corinth? They were rending asunder the protective garment that had been given them at their baptism. And so the apostle says, verse 14, I'm thankful, he says, that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, the early converts, lest any should say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, first and foremost, a preacher. And as in John 4, 2, baptism was a delegated responsibility of the disciples. John 4, 2 says Jesus baptized not himself, but his disciples did. And so you see, brethren, the context in which Paul moves to handle the factiousness of this ecclesia. He points out, first of all, that it's God that does the calling. That he himself is a called out one, and that God has confirmed the testimony in Christ Jesus by giving Holy Spirit powers. Then I appeal to you, says the Apostle Paul, that you all agree one with another, that there be no dissensions among you, that you rip not apart the protective covering that was given you in Christ Jesus. And so the apostle moves over to chapter 3. Brethren, says the apostle Paul, I could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. Now here the Corinthians were saying, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, your teaching is too simple. We, we want to get something that's more sophisticated, more intellectually respectable. This is the whole concern, the latter part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. But the Apostle says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. But he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, yet among the mature of the Ecclesia, he says we do impart wisdom. He says we do have a mystery too and, and wisdom. He says, but it's not according to the wisdom of this age, verse 6, or the rulers of this age, that's the scribe, the Jew, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. Now, he says, brethren, I couldn't come and explain this to you because you're fleshly. You're factious. And here you want me to speak about things that are wise and deep and mysterious? Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like ordinary men? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another I belong to Apollos, are you not merely men? And now the Apostle Paul embarks to continue the progression of thought of chapter 1 
in handling the factious spirit. What then is Apollos, says Paul? What is Paul? They are servants. Diakoinai, the word for a deacon. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4 and 7. Through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. Again, God calls, God assigns. Who are Paul and Apollos? They're merely servants executing the privileges and the prerogatives that God has delegated to them. I planted, said the Apostle Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, the increase. So who's Paul and Apollos? Brethren, he says, we're mere ministers. He says, so neither is he who plants, nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters, says the apostle, are equal, and each shall receive his wages according to his labor. Now notice, brothers and sisters, the clever emphasis of the Apostle Paul. First image. We are fellow workers for God. Next image. You are God's field, or God's tilled field. You are God's building. Notice the repetition of God. God gave the growth, verse 6. God gave the growth, verse 7. It's God's building, God's field, and we're fellow workers for God. So what are you doing, Corinthians, with this factious spirit of setting up party leaders? This is God's divine work. And as for me, says the Apostle Paul, according to the commission of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, an architect in the Greek, I laid a foundation. And another man is building upon it. But don't think, Corinthians, that I just make my own foundations. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. And now he comes to change his image. He says, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Excuse me, Jeff. Now, this chart presents the background to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, notice how Paul employed his images. And in the course of our addresses, we have slides illustrating you are God's tilled field. You are God's building. The image the apostle employs, the images he employs, all come from the life of the Corinthians, as you'll see from the vineyards and so on in the slides later on to the series. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's uh, employing imagery that would be obvious to the Corinthians. Because in 146 B.C., Mummius, the Roman, came down. And he came down to Corinth, and he burned it. And he really burned it. And all that remained were the buildings of stone, um, of precious metals that could be seen in the city. The hovels of timber, mud, hay, straw, were all burned up when he came down. 
in uh, 46 BC, Julius Caesar came down and made Corinth a colony of Rome with about 200 to 400,000 slaves and with a great floating population where there continued to be this uh, juxtaposing of the hovels. And with such a floating population, you have the squatters that would set up the buildings of hay, straw, and so on. As Brother Bill will know in Columbia, you see this. The great uh, landed aristocracy in Bogota. And then you see the squatters hobbled. Well, much like Corinth. And the people could look out over Corinth and see the uh, great pillars of the temple still standing. And so Paul employs this and works it into his imagery in chapter 3. He points out the folly of building on the foundation, which is Christ Jesus, these kind of materials which will pass away. And you might know, brothers and sisters, especially for our young people, that this passage is employed by the Roman Church as to be a passage supporting the doctrine of purgatory because it says, uh, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, in the Romanist teaching, if one has venial sin, undisclosed venial sin, then his immortal soul goes to purgatory for a period of purgation. If he has mortal sin, then he goes to hell for eternal torment. But notice the incompatible language with the Romanist view. Because the passage speaks about the day, doesn't speak of a period of long duration. It speaks about a limited period. The day will disclose it. Secondly, verse 4. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, if in fact your immortal soul went to purgatory and you were purged of these uh, venial sins that you had, had forgiven in this earthly life, then you should be delighted to uh, get rid of these uh, infirmities. But the Apostle Paul says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, which is proof, in fact, that the Apostle is not alluding to purgatory at all. The Apostle is alluding to the day, the day of judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 Malachi 3.2 Chapter 4 Verses 1-3 to 3. All of these passages are commentaries on 1 Corinthians chapter 3 The Day And for our young people this is uh, very useful information because maybe someday you will go knocking on a door inviting people out to maybe a special effort at Mount Waverly and uh, Someone will come to the door and say, oh, uh, we're all Catholics here, I'm sorry. And maybe you'll say, well, that's, uh, that's interesting, but why don't you come along and hear a, a good Bible address? They say, well, you know, our church is really the mother of the Bible, and uh, we're not too interested in the Bible. And maybe if you're enthusiastic, you'll get into, into a discussion with this Roman Catholic. And in course of the discussion, unusually, but uh, perhaps it may happen, that the Bible is known familiarly enough that he can quote 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And by having these passages marked in your margin, then you can do a more expert job of giving an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope 
that is within you. An advantage of having a Bible that you personally marked. And therefore, opposite the day, we would suggest uh, that this Greek word, Hemera, is not a day of long duration, as one would expect if an individual were going to purgatory, but it is the day, the day of judgment. Malachi 3, 2, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Now, the apostle is discussing here the relationship of a preacher to his converts. And we must appreciate this, brothers and sisters, as we work through this chapter. For he says, verse verse 14, If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, that is, if the preacher's converts uh, endure the fiery trial of judgment, he will receive a reward. Now, what reward, brothers and sisters? Now, think of Apollos. He was sent up to, um, to Corinth by Priscilla and Aquila, and he engaged in preaching work. And no doubt converts would have resulted. Now, the apostle is saying here, if the work which Apollos has built on the foundation Jesus Christ survives at the day of judgment, the apostle Paulus, or the minister Apollos, will receive a reward. What reward? The reward of seeing his converts gain eternal life when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And the apostle implies this uh, when he writes in his uh, second epistle, he's commenting there on the relationship also of a preacher to his converts. In verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Revised Standard Version, as you have understood in part that you can be proud of us as we can be of you on the day of the Lord Jesus. So he's speaking about being proud of the converts, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, on the day, same day, of the Lord Jesus. So we get the structure then of the apostle's argument. He says we have to be sure that we're building on this kind of foundation, foundation which is laid in Christ Jesus. Our work must be the work of gold, silver, precious stones in our work with our converts. Because he says there's coming a day that's going to try every man's work of what sort it is. And if the work that he's uh, built survives, then the preacher will receive a reward. The reward of seeing Brother X enter the great day of judgment and be a successful candidate for eternal life. But he says in verse 15, if any man's work is burned up in that day, he will suffer loss. What loss? The loss of seeing his, uh, the converts over which he has worked destroyed by the fire of judgment. If any man's work, his converts, are burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved by fire, will be saved, but only as through fire. So you see, brethren, the same fiery trial of judgment that will devour some converts will have to be endured by the preacher himself. 
He himself will be saved, says the apostle, but only as through fire. Now notice in the context, he's dealing with people who are at least busy building. Now maybe some of our building, brothers and sisters, is of this kind, timber, hay, wood, stone, and maybe some of our work is the kind of work that we'll spend in that day, gold, silver, stones, and so on. But even if the work is, is burned up, these people have been busy building. But look what he comes down to say. In the context here, verse 16, do you not know that you, Corinthians, are God's temple? This word, naos, is the word for the inner sanctuary of the temple. There's another Greek word that we'll look at later on that's used for temple, but the word used here is different. It's naos, and it means the inner sanctuary. Well, just, just think of the illusion here. Remember when God's divine presence illuminated uh, the most holy place with his Shekinah glory that dwelt between the cherubim? And he's telling these Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that temple you are. Brethren and sisters, there's a very powerful lesson in here. As we work in our individual ecclesias, some of you at Mount Waverley, some at Melbourne, some at Clayton, some from South Australia, we must give very serious attention to what we're doing in the ecclesia. If we're busy building, some of our work will be timber, mud, and hay that will be consumed by the fire of judgment in the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But at least, brothers and sisters, we've been building. But woe betide that man who's destroying God's building. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. They're very, very sobering words, brothers and sisters. As we go about attempting to uh, solve the problems of our individual ecclesias, as we look out upon the brotherhood as a whole, what kind of builders are we? Are we building hay, wood, and stubble? Are we building gold, silver, precious stones? Or are we the destroyers? And if we're the destroyers, then we have the divine fiat. God will destroy you or will destroy me if we're engaged in the destructive work of pulling down God's building. And so the Apostle Paul comes down very, very hard on those who are engaged in party factions in the Ecclesia at Corinth. And now, brothers and sisters, we must take a look at the wisdom of this world back in chapter 1. In order to appreciate this, uh, I'm going to quickly run through the chronology of um, the Apostle's journeys and his interrelationships 
with the Ecclesia at Corinth. Brothers and sisters, to really live with the Apostle, who travailed in birth until Christ was formed in these Corinthians, like he did with the Galatians. An apostle who was in great agony and in great pain. We must understand his relationship with the Corinthians. And here we have briefly sketched, for those of you who want to take down hasty notes, the chronology of this period. The Ecclesia was founded by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18. He was joined there, you'll recall, by Timothy and Silas on his second missionary journey. He uh, stayed there about 18 months. Remember, he went to the synagogue first um, when they uh, very, very greatly reviled the Apostle Paul. He shook out his garments and said, I'm going to the Gentiles now. He went to the house joined hard to the synagogue next door, continued to preach, and Crispus was converted. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 mentions him and Gaius. Then the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus. In the meantime, the Apollos, uh, an Alexandrian Jew, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit, but knowing only the baptism of John, is straightened out by Priscilla and Aquila. And they show to him the Messiahship as it is in Christ Jesus. And they send him off to Corinth, where he continues the work carried on by Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas. Now, Paul delayed his anticipated visit to Corinth from Ephesus because he said there was a wide-open door for effective work for me uh, at Ephesus. Now, the Corinthian Judaizers picked this up. And uh, they made out that the Apostle Paul wasn't a man of his word. He didn't let his yea be yea and his nay nay. And as we proceed through the studies, we'll see this. That's an important point. The Apostle delays his visit to Corinth and his opponents pick this up as instability on his part. He continues his work at Ephesus. Now, before the epistle that we have, the Apostle Paul sent what I call here an initial letter. My reason for this comes from chapter 5. We should look up this passage because it's important to see that this inference is really founded on Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, 9... He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. So obviously some correspondence uh, prior to the first epistle had been undertaken by the Apostle Paul uh, with the Ecclesia at Corinth. Now when the Apostle addresses this letter to the Corinthians, he not only has uh, information from Apollos, who returned from Corinth, he gets some inside information from Chloe's uh, household. From chapter 1, we we read of this in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, and he says in verse, uh, verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. Chapter 5, he refers to things that... Uh, were of rather common understanding. It is actually reported, 5 verse 1, that there is immorality among you. So the apostle has official communication with the Corinthians 
But he's getting the inside picture of the factions, of the problems, through Chloe, and no doubt from Apollos, who had returned to Ephesus from Corinth. The apostle then sends uh, Timothy and Erastus ahead to Corinth. And the apostle is quite concerned how the Corinthians are going to receive Timothy. It would appear that Timothy was a rather timid individual, and with some of these eloquent Greeks, he may have had some problems. But it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy and told him that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and self-control. And brothers and sisters, that word for power is the same word in English for dynamo that the apostle had given by his spirit power, manifested in gifts and in the word, a power of a dynamo, he says to Timothy. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so Paul sends Timothy and Erastus ahead to Corinth. Then he writes the epistle that we now have. First epistle. In the meantime... Judaizers who dogged the apostles' work wherever he went showed up at Corinth. Notice uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. By the way, if your Bible opens as mine does, you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle says, Was I vacillating? When I wanted to do this, do I make my plans like a worldly man, ready to say yes and no at once? He's replying to their allegation that he didn't show up at Corinth when he said he would. Uh, chapter 3 of Second Corinthians, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Why, Corinthians, he says, you are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. And in chapter 11, the apostle really comes down on the leader of this Judaizing faction, verse 13 of chapter 11. For such men, says the apostle, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan, probably the chief leader, disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their deed, their end, will correspond to their deeds. So, these Judaizers arrive at Corinth, and the last four chapters of Paul's second epistle are addressed to combating the Judaizing influence and to legitimize his own position in the Ecclesia. Paul makes a very painful visit to Corinth, as he told them. He said, for I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 2.1. So apparently what he did was when these Judaizers arrived, false apostles who sought a following at Corinth, the apostle left Ephesus, went back up to counteract it, 
and it was a very painful visit when he had to withstand to the face these Judaizers. The apostle then writes an intermediate letter. We can deduce this from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which we won't look up now. But we can infer from the language here that there is an intermediate letter, which I've called here, correspondence uh, that Paul addresses to the Corinthians. Now the Apostle Paul was very, very concerned about the response of these Corinthians. In fact, he was so agitated that he was to meet Titus um, in, in uh, let's see, it's fitting where he was to meet him now. But anyway, he went on to Troas and uh, looked up uh, Titus at Troas. He was so agitated uh, by the response, for the response of these Corinthians, to see how they would reply to this uh, very strong intermediate letter that he wrote. As it turned out, it was uh, very favorably received. And so the Apostle Paul addresses his second epistle to the Corinthians, then he goes there himself for three months, and then writes the epistle to the Romans. Now, brothers and sisters, in terms of what we had to say last night, can you turn to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1. And this furnishes a very fitting background for our preliminary consideration of the wisdom that was considered foolishness by Almighty God. Romans 1, verse 18. Now remember, he's uh, writing this from Corinth during his three-month stay, uh, and you can imagine him overlooking Corinth. You've got the temple of Aphrodite with its 1,000 priestesses, where to Corinthianize was a colloquial term for engaging these priestesses in illicit affairs. And so he says, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now think of this in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity. And he goes on to describe all of the abominations of life at Corinth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. Now in terms of our background, brothers and sisters, last night, that uh, first epistle, that first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans really becomes alive because you see the catastrophic end 
of those who elevated the wisdom of this world. Now here is the position, if we may illustrate it. We have the Greek. He's a, a very, very small individual in the whole cosmos. Now he's on the earth that's uh, making a yearly circuit around the sun. And he sits back and he cogitates. And he thinks about ethics and about morals and about that which is wise. He called it uh, Sophia. Wisdom. But you see how the man who sits back and thinks about ethics is really caught up in the flux of existence. No man can sit, uh, sit down and watch the world go by. The Greek was caught up in all the flux of life. And after a short space of time, for 70 years as he journeyed around the sun, he would record what he thought were ultimate values and absolutes. And then lo and behold, Socrates would come and Aristotle and other Grecian thinkers, and they would criticize and elaborate on other theories of ethics. And the Greek was part of the cosmos of the age. And he was part of a perishing age. Because the world by wisdom could truly learn about God's eternal power and deity by the things that are made. But the Greek was unable to go from the evidence of his senses to God's divine plan of salvation. And here is where the Greek and his ethical system came to a standstill. And so Paul said the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. But you know we have a modern counterpart. We have, for example, men like Lyle in their geology who reject um, um, the theory, who, who hold the theory of uniformity. That all things have continued the same from the beginning of the creation. The doctrine of uniformity of nature is based on the same assumptions as the Grecian did for his ethical system of philosophy. And so modern geology, which uh, rejects the concept of catastrophe like a worldwide flood, assumes uniformity of nature. But unfortunately, the geologist, like the Grecian philosopher, is part of the flux of existence. And how does he know for sure that things are uniform? The number of observations that he will make, or that any man will make in his lifetime, is only a very, very infinitesimally small number of all the events that actually go on. But from the uniformity of nature, we come to our carbon-14 dating. And hence we come to the great ages postulated for fossils and bones and uh, other things that reach the archives of our museums. And all of these dating methods assume the uniformity of nature. And how do we know things are uniform? We can't know it from experience because the number of observations that men have been able to make are so infinitesimally small that statistically it would never be reliable. And so God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will thwart, says God Almighty. But we also have uh, another problem today. We don't have the structure 
of the first century. We had men who were designated as apostles. Men who could provide credentials that God was working through them. And presumably the apostle would have all of the spirit gifts. And so the apostle could legislate. Who, for example, would be elders. They could set up men to wait on tables while others uh, worked in the ministering of the word. And so authority in the first century could flow down through the organizational structure. And it was designed this way so that uh, in the ecclesia you would have a working together of all the component elements. But of course, brothers and sisters, we had a problem in the, first, in, uh, in the 1800s when John Thomas began establishing ecclesias. We had the statement in Philippians that every man ought to esteem a brother better than himself. What kind of an organization are you going to have? Sure, you get the group of believers together at the back of a hall. How are you going to decide when to meet? Should you have officers? You obviously can't have elders like they had in the first century, and you certainly don't have apostles. Well, our pioneers resorted to the electoral system, and it had its difficulties. So theoretically, we had a flat organization. No hierarchy setting in like the clergy, but a flat organizational structure. But you can imagine what's going to happen. Initially, our early converts in the 1800s were artisans, men who worked with their hands and labored, and it didn't give them a ready utterance for the platform. But what happens when you get a man that uh, has had some university training? Or a man like Robert Ashcroft, who was a gentleman of the cloth who became a convert and was taken in by Robert Roberts. Then you've introduced something into your ecclesia that... The conclusion of that previous address is missing.